A well-known preacher has said, money is the substance that can buy you everything but happiness and take you anywhere but heaven. Everything but happiness and anywhere but heaven. Churches and the teaching of churches either ignore the issue of money. By the way, Jesus doesn't ignore it, nor does the Bible ignore it. Churches either ignore the issue of money or they make money an ultimate goal, either in personal lives with a a cursed health, wealth, prosperity gospel, or in the functional life of the church where all that seems to happen is the church is enriching itself off the giving of its people. One way or another, that makes money an idol, and there are plenty of warnings in God's Word about idolatry. Money and wealth basically represents a tool. Money is something that is to be used, not an end to be pursued, and yet how easily we forget that. We're no different than the Corinthians in many ways. We're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're toward the end now, Open your Bibles, please, to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, and I'd encourage you to use a pew Bible if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, and you'll find that on page 1222. 1 Corinthians 16. And what we're going to find today is that our text involves a, a special financial project. It's a project that is above and beyond the regular giving of the Corinthian church. And there are straightforward instructions here. And what's interesting, I think, I hope that you will see, is that the instructions have to do with efficiency. They're very, very practical. That's what we're going to see. This special project that needed funds, the Apostle Paul writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth, gives very specific processes for receiving this offering, for planning for their offering, for receiving it, and for how it will be distributed. So with that in mind, look with me at at least the first part of our text. We'll go all the way down through verse 9 this morning. But to begin, let's just read through verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And I remind you as I read, as I do every Lord's Day, this is God's word for us today. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is a very specific and a very practical text. There's a cry today for relevance in preaching and for sermons that can give practical application in life, right? Everyone wants to go to church and go home with something practical and immediately useful, right? Well, be careful what you ask for. One of my favorite preachers, his sermon title on this text was, quote, you love the practical over the theological, here's your subject, how you should participate in church offerings, unquote. How's that for practical? Be careful what you ask for. 
I think we recognize most of Paul's letters, those of us who are familiar with the New Testament, most of Paul's letters, they kind of resemble, we can almost say they resemble white papers. They're, they're intellectual discourses. They're, they're instructional treatises on theology and on the nature of God and, and salvation in the church. But in nearly every one of the letters that we find in the New Testament, there are also small sections that are personal. They're, they're almost like memos. Some of them, in fact, are, are thank you notes. But we find their insights and instructions about how Paul saw life in the church and how he understood what we call the Christian life. You'd almost call them accidental if you didn't believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, nothing is accidental in the Bible. And so we call them incidental, but we have to be careful about that because it's part of God's Word, so really nothing is incidental in the Bible. And our text this morning represents one of those sections. And we find important and practical principles. Now there's a reason that kind of practical instruction was necessary in the early church especially when we think of things like money and things like giving. Because the first generation of the church, it was made up of converted Jews. And one thing you could say about the Jews and their emphasis on the law was that they understood giving. They understood tithing. They understood caring for others. There was a system, a built-in system in Judaism for caring for others. How well it was practiced, how broadly it was participated in, we can't really say. But Theoretically speaking, the Jews who had come to follow Jesus didn't need to be taught so much about giving. But now there was a second generation of the church that Paul was writing to. And that second generation of the church was populated by converted pagans. And they didn't know anything about giving. They didn't know anything about, about how the body of Christ should function. And these lessons, these practical things we're talking about this morning, they continue to be important because whether you realize it or not, every generation of the church, including this one, is populated by saved rebels who are still capable of being seduced away by money. Nobody said amen. But it's true. The selfishness that still abides in my heart, sometimes the covetousness that is there, the concern and worries about finances and my future, those things are part and parcel of life, and we need to remember the words of Jesus. Jesus said, you'll serve one or two masters. You'll either serve me or you'll serve, the term he used was mammon, which was a broad term of wealth and, and possessions, and, and that's a choice that we all end up having to make, not once, let me suggest to you, but we make it every day. Who, whom will we serve? And so this text is talking about money, it's talking about stewardship, but as you're going to see before we're through, it also talks about much more, but all of them are practical. And the book of 1 Corinthians so far has been filled with corrections and rebukes and cautions, and now as Paul heads toward the end of his letter, what we find is we find a practical template to show us what Christian living does look like. And I've entitled this message this morning, Gracious Living. Because it's living, and we hear the word gracious, and I think perhaps that needs fleshing out. Because gracious is kind of a weak word. It's like gracious, oh, that means kind and nice. But gracious is based on grace. Gracious means that your life is informed by, it's influenced by, it's infused with the grace of God. That's how we should live as God's people. Changed and influenced every day by God's kindness to us that we don't deserve. 
And when we live lives that are drenched in grace, our lives look different from the lives around us. And that's what we find in this text this morning. So look with me, beginning there in verse 1 again, at what this looks like. What lives drenched with gospel grace, what they will display. First of all, they display deliberate generosity regarding the needs. And when I say that, I mean the practical needs of suffering brothers and sisters. That's a demonstration, a reality of a life that's been transformed by the grace of God. You have a heart for and a desire to help meet the needs of suffering brothers and sisters. Notice verse 1. What Paul is doing here, as we've seen through the letter of 1 Corinthians, is he's answering another question that they've sent. They've heard about this offering to Jerusalem, and they've professed evidently, we, we put this together from reading later in 2 Corinthians, evidently they had professed an interest in being part of it, but they were asking for some specifics about how to go about it. So notice in verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So here's what you're to do, verse 2, on the first day of every week, and already we have to hit pause and stop, because this was unusual in the ancient world especially unusual for a religion that had come out of Judaism. A religion that had come out of Judaism, Jesus was a Jew. He offers himself as the Messiah to Israel, even still. This is one of the reasons we have concerns for the Jewish people today. Though they broadly are in unbelief, they still hold a special place in the heart of God, and so should they in our hearts. But Christianity began, was birthed out of Judaism. And as such, it's stunning that the people who followed the Jewish Messiah did not gather to worship on the Sabbath. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament and anything about the law, the Sabbath was foundational to how the God of Israel was worshipped. But something happened when the Jewish Messiah came, lived, died, and resurrected. Something happened so that his followers, instead of meeting together on the Sabbath, almost immediately, from what we can tell, began gathering on the first day of the week, what you and I would call Sunday. Now, what might that be? What event happened that would so transform their worldview that even though they still honored what we call the Old Testament, even though they still recognized that Jesus indeed was the Messiah of Israel, who'd come not for Israel only, but for the sins of the world, but what happened that so transformed their worldview that as they gathered to worship, that gathering primarily would be represented on the first day of the week? Well, it was the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was such a pivotal event that we find the church, when we have references to the gathering of the church, we find them using the day of the Lord, which is the first day of the week. You see it in Acts 20, verse number 7, with the gathering at Troas. You remember where Paul preached long and Eutychus was sitting in the window and he fell out of the window? Remember that story? That was a gathering on the first day of the week. Here Paul says, when you come together on the first day of the week. That, that's not just some random, oh, by the way, whenever you come together on a Sunday, Paul recognized that the believers in Jesus we're now gathering and worshiping and practicing life of the body on the first day of the week. And let me just suggest to you, without building out a sermon around this truth, that is a significant evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the religion that came out of Judaism would shift the day of worship, which was crucial in the Judaistic system. And those Jews, the first followers of Jesus, shifted their worship what we call the first day of the week. 
enough of that. Look at verse 2. Again, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. It's an unusual phrase. It, the, the, you could read it, one translation translates it, whatever he has been blessed with. This is the idea. So you give out of whatever God has provided, whatever he has prospered you with as he may prosper, so that there be no collecting when I come. And let me just suggest to you, I don't think that we can make any big issue out of this, but this is a very unusual word in verse 1 and in verse 2, collection. It's only used here in the New Testament. And it really has the idea, don't run too far with this, but it has the idea in Greek language, it has the idea in, the, in Greek usage, the time that Paul wrote, almost of a religious tax. And so it was an unusual, the reason it's an unusual word is because this is an unusual kind of offering. It's not the typical giving of the Corinthian church. There's something unusual happening here. And the issue was relief for the poor saints in Jerusalem, the members of the first church that had been founded at this time, it had been founded 25 years earlier. Now, why would that church have been poor? Why would those saints have been in need of financial help? Why would they, the implication in other places in the New Testament is there was a danger of them starving. Why was there an issue here? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, Judea was always a poor region to begin with. It was not a wealthy region in the ancient Roman Empire. Secondly, there had been, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, there had been significant persecution that had dispersed much of the original church out of Jerusalem, therefore winnowing down its numbers, winnowing down its numbers to where there were fewer believers there than there had been before. There was also about 10 years after the founding of the church, there was a significant famine, especially in Judea, and people were starving to death. Now this was 10 to 15 years after that famine, but some suggest that the, the financial results, especially in an ancient economy, especially in a primarily agricultural economy, that the results of that were still being felt in Jerusalem. But the primary issue here is this, is that Jesus' followers had been so marginalized in that culture, many of them had been separated from their families because they followed Jesus. Many of them had lost their employment because they were Jesus' followers. And history tells us that the Jews around the empire would send gifts, basically would, would voluntarily send welfare gifts to Jerusalem to help the Jews in the holy city, their, their holy city, where the temple was. But if you were a Jesus follower, do you think you had a part in that? You didn't. So the, the help that came to the population from other parts of the Roman Empire, it would not have been availed of, it would not have been made available to those that followed Jesus. Therefore, the Jesus followers, the saints in Jerusalem, needed financial help. And so what Paul is doing to the Corinthians is he's saying, listen, you're Jesus followers, they're Jesus followers. Individually, you need to bring your gifts together corporately so that you will relieve the suffering of your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's not the first time Paul has done this. It's not the first. It seems to be a concern in all of his missionary journeys. He mentions it. And one thing that's going on here is because there was inherently in the culture and drifting over into the church, there was a Jewish-Gentile divide. There was a sense of, of distrust. There was a sense of separation. This would be a tremendous benefit for the Gentile believers in other parts of the empire 
to financially help the primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem, which evidently is exactly what Paul has in mind. He writes about this to the Romans in Romans 15.25 after the events of 1 Corinthians. In other words, when the giving had finally happened, notice what he says. He says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, and Achaia is basically, we would say, Greece, where Corinth was located, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And by the way, those were all Gentiles. The next verse. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, look at these words, they owe it to them. That's a pretty stunning statement. Why would Gentile believers in Corinth owe Jewish Christians in Jerusalem anything? Well, look at it. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul's rationale was, the Jews in Jerusalem are hurting. Paul's rationale was, how appropriate is it, because they have sent out the gospel to the whole world, how appropriate is it for those whose lives have been changed by the gospel to help relieve their suffering? And that's precisely what we have. So this is an example, it's one example of a special project of what I would call this morning grace giving. And let me very quickly go through some principles that are revealed here and in other places of the New Testament about grace giving. First of all, grace giving should be planned. It should be deliberate. It shouldn't be primarily emotionally driven. Oh, my heart is moved, I'm going to write a check. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But what Paul is saying is that the way we give should not be haphazard. It should be consistent. It should be planned. Consistent is the second point. It should be consistent. He, he avoided emotion-laden appeals. He, he didn't look for offerings in the middle of crises. There was no emergency fund drive here. Now, be careful. If our roof blows off this winter, we'll have to have an emergency fund drive to replace our roof. Not saying that it's wrong. But generally speaking, our giving, which is motivated by God's grace, we're talking about gracious living, our giving should be planned and consistent. It also should be individual. He says, each one of you, which means that all of us should be involved. The wealthy should be involved, and those of us that are just scraping by should be involved. If that makes you uncomfortable, hold on for about 30 seconds, all right? But nevertheless, it's individual, but that individual giving is brought together corporately. You say, well, I read this, it sounds like they're just supposed to keep it all in their house, but that doesn't seem to be the point because of the last phrase in verse 2 where it says, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So the point is, weekly you should plan on what to give, and you should give it to the church, and as you give it to the church, when the apostle arrives, then we're able to give the money to the apostle, and he's able to send it to Jerusalem. It should be individual, yet given corporately. And by the way, the emphasis here is that all of us participate. There was a problem, evidently even in Corinth, there was a problem with the wealthy Christians thinking they were in a different category. By the way, I've seen churches that have an unusual component of wealthy people. It, I haven't seen it in the last five years because I've been in this church, but I, I have seen churches that have an unusual contingent of wealthy people, and the tendency is on two sides. The, the tendency is, first of all, the wealthy people think we're the ones that are carrying this church. And the regular people that are in that church think well, it doesn't really matter what we do because the wealthy people have it covered. Paul's trying to avoid that. And that brings me to the next point. 
our giving should be proportional. And the giving should be proportional to how God has prospered us. Not necessarily tithing. I don't know if you've noticed in five years, you've never heard me call for tithes and offerings. You've never heard me exhort you to give 10% of your income. Because in the New Testament, we are not called to tithe. We are called to give by grace as God has prospered us in these special offerings, but in regular offerings too. Nowhere in the New Testament, other than Jesus' somewhat oblique reference to Judaism, other than that reference, know that nowhere is there a command to bring 10% or to give a tithe. And listen, you need to think about that, because once again, the churches ended up being populated by pagans who would have understood nothing about tithing. If tithing were a requirement, there'd have to be some instruction, some teaching about it in the New Testament. So we're not calling for 10%. The tithe represents likely a guideline. I recognize Abraham tithed before the law. I think giving 10% is a healthy guideline or standard or example. But listen very carefully. The tithe as we understand it in the Bible was essentially a tax for the nation of Israel. And if you really want to tithe according to the Old Testament, you've heard this before likely, you need to give not 10%, but does anyone know? 23%. Because there were two tithes, and then there was a once every third year tithe. You say, well, I'm glad I'm not a member of that church. But that's the point. It wasn't a church. It was a nation. In fact, if you want to find a parallel to tithing today, you need to think about April 15th. It's taxation, in a sense. We're no longer a theocratic nation God supported the theocratic nation of Israel through the tithes of his people, but he caused the people of the church to give graciously, to give rooted in grace, to give out of our hearts, and to give as God has provided for us. Listen carefully. Let me give you a quick example of the reason I don't think the tithe is even proportional and appropriate. Think about a, uh, and I've seen families like this. Think about a single mom who's trying to raise kids, who's in a church, and she's subsisting, let's say, let's just pick a number, a a number at the poverty level. Let's say she's subsisting on $30,000 a year, and you call her to tithe because it's equal and it's proportionate, and you say, you better tithe, and she feels this responsibility, I have to tithe. She's going to give $3,000 a year to tithe, and she's going to raise her two kids on $27,000 a year. You have another guy who's making $300,000 a year, all right? And a tithe for him is $30,000, if I've got my math right. And so he's left to raise his family and provide for his family $270,000 a year, whereas the single mom is left to raise her kids with $27,000 a year. The tithe as giving out of the generosity of our heart is not equal effect. And what God calls us to is not to divide the percentages as part of the church, God calls us to look at how he's provided and say, what can I give that represents generosity? And for some families, it may seem like to us only a token. And to others of us, by the way, 10% might not even scratch the surface of what we are able and ought to give. So if you need to cling to the idea of a tithe, hold to it as a general standard, but recognize that what the text says is as we give, we give as God has prospered us. And for some of us, God has prospered us to where 
a tithe is like, I heard a preacher say one time, you're just tipping God. And that may be. These days, it seems to be more than a tithe when we're asked for a tip, doesn't it? But anyway. But for others of us, a tithe represents a sacrifice that God might not be laying upon you because of your responsibility to care for and provide for your family. It's proportional as God has prospered you. But having said that, the last thing, it's also generous. It's to be generous. And the reason we can say it's to be generous is because Paul's motivation, we find more about this in 2 Corinthians, Paul's motivation is for a care and a love gift to people who are suffering. But we see that generosity is really characteristic of Jesus himself. What do we read in Acts 20, verse 35? In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul later wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel, by the way. You get that? Generosity is at the heart of the gospel. Sacrificial giving is at the heart of the gospel. We have benefited, that's grace, we have benefited from the graciousness and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. And we receive that in humility. By the way, if you've never received that in humility, if you've never humbled yourself and acknowledged your guilt and your sin, then you are still outside of Christ and you are lost. In fact, you are damned according to the Bible. The wrath of God abides on you according to the Bible. But God freely gives you a gift of eternal life if you will receive it in repentance and faith. That's the gospel. And as I always do, I call you to consider the gospel this morning. This is a heart of generosity, and it reflects a life that is drenched in grace. And so what we find, if you want to think through our studies in 1 Corinthians, what we find are three primary ways that churches dispense finances. The term we use is stewardship. There are three primary ways that the church receives offerings and dispenses offerings. The first, Paul addressed back in chapter 9, where he claimed he had a right to, to support from the church as the pastor, but he yielded that right. So the first way that churches are to handle money is they are to support their pastors and, by extension, the other ministries. And so that's a responsibility of the church. This church does that very well for us who serve. And God has abundantly met our needs as a church through your faithful giving. To the extent that we're able to do renovations, we're able to continue our missions commitments, all of these things. You've been very generous. The second is here in our text this morning, and it's this benevolent offering, essentially. It's a gift for relief to brothers and sisters who are suffering. It's, it's benevolence, and that's what we find here, and that's what the church ought to be engaged in, and we do this, don't we? We, we, we have a, a fund that we receive, particularly on communion Sundays, and if you want to be very legalistic, I don't think you have to be, if you want to be very legalistic about this particular chapter, then every week you should be putting money aside, and then the first Sunday of the month, you should bring that money and drop it in the benevolent offering. I don't think that this text demands that kind of rigidity. 
But the church ought to be looking for opportunities to help suffering believers. And you give to that, and we utilize those funds as elders and leaders. We utilize those funds to help people who are suffering, primarily who are in our church, primarily those who are connected with our church who has physical need or has a financial need or is going through a difficult time. And then the third way, we're going to see it down in verse 6 right now, the third way is what we call missions giving. It's the support of missionaries. So there are three ways the church practices stewardship. The support of its pastors and its ministries, the concern of benevolence for those who are hurting, and then also ministry needs outside the door, ministry needs of others who are sharing the gospel, what we call missions. And that's what we find beginning in verse 3, running all the way down to verse 6, because a life drenched in gospel grace doesn't just show generosity, but also it displays shared responsibilities. We have responsibilities together, especially in the realm of missions, shared responsibilities regarding ministry. Now, let me show you this. Let's go back to the text. Look in verse 3, chapter 16, verse 3. Paul says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift. Uh, He uses a different word there, uh, charis, uh, uh, just a grace gift. Uh, In 2 Corinthians, he uses a term literally service for the gift. But uh, to carry your gift to Jerusalem, you see how he's concerned about transparency. It's not a deal where Paul wants to to get the money bag. Maybe Judas was in the back of his mind. I don't know. But he didn't want to get the money bag and carry it to Jerusalem by himself and have questions. First of all, obviously, there were safety issues. But also questions about how much did they give and how much ended up in Jerusalem. So he says, no, no, I want you to send people with the money. And perhaps I'll go with you, he says that in the next batch. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. What's the point of all of this? Look in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that, here's his goal, you may help me on my journey wherever I go. This is mission support. Paul was an itinerant missionary. He was an apostle, but he traveled around, and that involved expenses. And Paul was bold enough to say, I expect the church to help me with my travel expenses. Now remember in chapter 9, he'd said, I didn't want to receive a salary when I was with you. But here he says, you do need to support me along the way. It was a shared responsibility. They were in this together. They were partnering together. And we should do this too. Listen, people changed by grace are eager to see that grace extended to others and not just across the street and not just to our own family members, but people across the world who are in darkness And the church needs to have a vision, not just that our needs be met and we're able to replaster our building, not just for that, not just so that our pastors are well cared for, as important as that is according to the New Testament, but the reason we exist is because this gospel message needs to go to the world around us. And so the health and care of missionaries should be a concern for each of us. And I want to tell you, you might not know this, but the history of this church is rooted in our identification, our radical identification in the 1940s and 50s with a missions organization 
that was breaking free of liberalism in the Northern Baptist Convention, and they could no longer support the missionaries that the Northern Baptist Convention was sending out because the missionaries didn't believe the fundamentals of Scripture. And so there was an organization which began called the Conservative Baptist Foreign Missions Association, and Calvary Baptist of Santa Barbara was one of the original churches that identified with that project. Why? Because missions is the heartbeat of the church. And why would we give money to send a deficient gospel to the nations? And so that was the beginning of this church identification with what ultimately became the conservative Baptist of America. But it was rooted in our missions giving and our, our partnering together, our shared responsibilities and sharing in these kinds of financial investments, whether it's benevolence to people who are hurting or whether it's the gospel to the nations, when we do this, we reflect the grace of the gospel itself and we reflect what it means to truly be a member of God's people. What we really reflect is we reflect the love of God. You know what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. What will prove that? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We've read those words already. We read them again. Because this is love. We're not just satisfied that yeah, our needs are met and we're good and, and we have a beautiful building to worship in and we have people coming and, and how great it is. The question is, why has God been so kind to us? Because one reason, at least, is that there's a world that still needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And corporately together, as we bring our funds and as we wisely use our money, we support missionaries that take that message where it's not easily heard. And a church that cares nothing about missions is a church that is already in the throes of its death. That's the reason we exist. But this plays out also in practical relationships. Because it's not just generosity and it's not just responsibilities. It's also real and sincere devotion. Look with me in verse 7. Notice what it says there. Paul says, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. So he's talking about his travel plans. And he's already referred to these travel plans, which if you love to study the Bible, dive into the way that Paul's travel plans originally looked and how they ended up working out. And it's a fascinating study that will make your head spin, all right? But he planned well, and then God worked. But notice what he says. I hope to spend some time with you, not just in passing, and that's my whole point here. I'm not sure how much time I'll have to flesh it out. But if you love people, if you're devoted people, you don't want to just spend time passing. You want to invest your life with them. We say this often. It's part of our philosophy of trying to do home groups in our church. It's part of our encouragement for you to connect with other people because if the only connection you have with the body of Christ is literally, it's, it's astonishing this word is used here, passing. You pass them in the aisle. You pass them at the coffee bar. You pass them as you head to the parking lot. If that's it, then you're not really devoting yourself in a loving relationship with other people. How much are you really going to weep with those that weep? How much are you going to rejoice with those that rejoice? How much are you going to come alongside and help? This is deliberate, 
not just deliberate generosity and not just shared responsibility. This is sincere devotion. Sincere devotion regarding relationships. Not just, Paul said, I don't want to just pass through and get my offering and you cover my travel expenses and I keep going because we have a relationship together and I'm devoted to you and I believe you're devoted to me. And think about that, by the way. Think about that. The Corinth church, with everything we've read about the Corinth church, and Paul said, I want to hang out with you all. That might be scary for the Corinth church, by the way, given what he's written to them. But it shows his devotion to them. Paul was never satisfied with merely phoning it in. He labored not as a man pleaser, but he labored based on his love for God and based on his love for Christ's church. And he recognized and acknowledged that that nearly always requires time invested. Paul understood 2,000 years ago, quantity time versus quality time. You remember that? Oh, quality time. Well, I'm just going to pass through, but as I pass through, it will be quality time, and then I'm going to keep moving. Paul said, that doesn't work. For it ever to get to quality, there has to be a level of quantity, Paul said. This is his devotion, and this is the devotion that grace-drenched people have for one another. Not just passing in the aisle, not just passing in the street, not just, just passing by, but willing to get involved in one another's lives. Sincere devotion. And then he qualifies at the end of the verse. Do you see it? He says, if the Lord permits. Does that sound tentative to you? I mean, I recognize there are people that use, they use phrases like Lord willing or, or if the Lord permits, and they use it as a kind of a biphrase. It's just like throwing it out there, and it doesn't mean anything. But the Apostle Paul made wise plans and had intentions and reasons and strategies, and then he took his hands off as he practiced and he pursued those, and he let God's providence work its will. So he says, if God permits. It's the same thing that James says in chapter 4 of James. You remember these words, right? Where James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such a, such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Precisely what Paul has said. Make your plan and then trust in God's providence. James shared Paul's total confidence in God's will being worked out in his life. This is what we call providence. It's the confidence that God is directing, and it doesn't relieve us of our responsibility or our choices. It just means that God ultimately will control and direct as he sees fit. And so Paul says, this is what I want to do. I'm devoted to you. I want to come and spend time with you, not just pass through, but I want to spend time with you if the Lord permits. Somebody's called this disciplined flexibility. Disciplined flexibility. He had confidence that God's providence was at work. Now, it's great to have confidence in God's providence when things are going great. But especially in difficult times, do you really believe that God is still at work? But I want you to look at the last part of our text, beginning in verse 8. And I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to watch it. It says, 
verse 8 says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And I'll stop right there. Whose choice is that? That's Paul's decision. It's a free choice that Paul makes. He said, this is my intention. My intention is to stay here in, in Ephesus until Pentecost. That's Paul's decision. But that's not the only thing that's in play. Because he also says, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me. A wide door for effective work has opened for me. That's a passive. Uh, scholars call it a divine passive. The implication is God is at work. God has opened a door. And so Paul is making a free decision based on his wisdom and what he can see at the time. But he, at the very same time, he recognizes that that decision is rooted in how he sees God working, that God has opened doors and the doors are effective. So Paul makes a free decision. God's providence is in play, but you would think the rest of the verse would read this. I've made a wise decision. God's providence is in play. Therefore, things are great. Right? But look at what he says. I've made my decision. I'll stay in Ephesus because God has done his work. A wide door for effective work is opened and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. And once again, you say, well, how can that be God's providence? Because that's the way God works. God works in good times, but he also works in bad times. And I think most of us who have lived a while will tell you that we learned far deeper lessons, far more wondrous truths going through the dark days than we did in the bright days. This is God's providence at work. Lives drenched in gospel grace will display courageous passion, especially when the matters of eternity are at play. Courageous passion. That's what Paul shows here. Things are happening. Spiritually, things are happening. Oh, there's trouble too. But I'm going to have courage because I'm engaging with passion the things that God is doing because those things touch eternity. Listen, people, everything's a battle if you haven't figured that out. All of life is a battle. Read Genesis 3, thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. Moses, when Moses wrote that, he didn't have in mind filling out insurance papers when you're sick, but that's a thorn and thistle. He didn't have in mind the boss that doesn't give you the respect that you deserve at work, but that's a thorn and thistle. He didn't necessarily have in mind all the troubles that we have. Life's a battle. And then beyond the thorns and thistles, there's always opposition. The evil one is at work. He's not eager to see the work of God come to fruition. He's not able to see, e eager to see souls saved. He doesn't want you to pursue Christ with passion. He doesn't want this church to grow in our faithfulness to God and our desire to reach the nations. He doesn't want that to happen. There are always adversaries. There are always adversaries. Thorns and thistles from the fall. Opposition from Satan. You want to look at the specifics? Very quickly, look back in chapter 15 for just a moment. Listen to the way Paul describes his experience as he was writing this letter. Go back to chapter 15 and look in verse 32. Chapter 15, verse 32. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? <laughs> That's how he describes it. He goes on. Turn, turn right in your Bibles. Go to the next page. Just turn the page over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and look how he describes it in verse 8. 
2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That was when he was in Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You recognize what he says there? We thought we were going to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Courageous passion. Courageous passion when matters of eternity are in view. And listen, an open door for ministry and opposition, they typically go hand in hand, sooner or later. Courage is required, but passion is there because we recognize this is the reason we're here. The reason we're in our circumstance, the reason God's put us in our family, the reason God's put us in this church, the reason God's put this church in Santa Barbara, the reason God's put us here at this time in history is because it's an open door for effective ministry. Yes, there are adversaries. You say, but sometimes it's so hard. Can I quote the baseball movie? It's the hard that makes it great. This cultural moment, there are so many adversaries, and yet there are wide doors for effective work. Listen carefully. Never in our lifetimes has living distinctive Christian lives been more potentially challenging. Never in our lifetimes has it been harder to live a faithful Christian life. But listen carefully. Never in our lifetimes has living distinctive Christian lives been more potentially influential. The farther this world gets away from what it means to be a Christian, the more distinctive and radical your life is going to look. Just as you live a faithful life, as you live graciously, like we've said here, as you deliberately plan generosity, as you share your responsibilities in ministry with others, as you devote yourselves in relationships, as you engage with courageous passion about things that are eternal, people around you have to sit up and say, there's something different. I don't get it. I might not like it. I might think it's crazy, but there is surely something different about that person. And that in and of itself is an open door where the Holy Spirit can work. Gracious living. Generous living. Responsible living in relationships to where we engage our partnerships. Devotion and love to one another. And passion when it comes to opposition. Yet caring about eternity. Who exemplifies this best? I mean, I think Paul does, and that may be some application, but how much better, if you think about it, isn't this the way Jesus lived? I mean, we've already read it from 2 Corinthians, we're rich because he became poor, that's his generosity. What did we give him? We gave him our sin, he gave us his what? His righteousness, that's his generosity. What about shared responsibilities? He gathered around him 12 men. One was, a, one was an imposter and, a, and an apostate, but he gave himself to them and they shared together in life, in mission. 
What about devotion? Well, we know the love of God. Jesus himself said, here's the greatest love that a man lays down his life for his friends. That's devotion. And what about courageous passion? He engaged the forces of hell to deliver to a father a people who are his own. Jesus. We're to live gracious lives, grace-drenched lives. And when we do, we look a lot like Jesus. That's your takeaway today. Grace-drenched lives look an awful lot like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this text, which is so practical. It holds up, in a sense, it holds in front of us a mirror where we can evaluate how much of our lives are infused and influenced by your grace. We confess and acknowledge that we need the Holy Spirit to live this way. None of this is our natural bent. Few of us are generous, naturally. Most of us want the spotlight, at least in one way or another, or to be left alone. The sacrifice of loving others sometimes is difficult, and we'd rather pass. And the kind of courage it takes to stand for Christ in the culture in which we live, well, sometimes it just looks too hard. But Jesus has gone this path before us. You have left us your word, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we ask this morning, humbly, yet we ask with passion, that our church would be the kind of gathering that represents gracious Christians, our lives drenched with your kindness and your grace, so much so that it changes the way we live our lives every day. All of us are in different places. Your Spirit has spoken to us about different matters. Do your work through your Spirit. Help us not to be forgetful hearers, but faithful doers. Help us recognize the ground upon which we stand is not our own effort, not our own worth, but it's the ground of Jesus who has gone this way before us. We stand in his grace and we pray these things in his name. Amen.